Hello and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, cast, whatever it is. The one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. Welcome back to everyone who's been listening to us and thanks for listening. I am one of your hosts, Jeff. I am better known in the fandom as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett Booth, better known as Poor Quentin. Welcome to our third episode of the Not A Cast entitled Enter the Godswood, an analysis of the Game of Thrones, Catelyn 1, a chapter all about Catelyn Stark, as well as Ned Stark, and Catelyn, who, by the way, has done nothing wrong ever in her entire life. Never once. She's never made a mistake. Her heart is as pure as driven snow. I'm sure we'll be enjoying getting into that as the book goes on. Absolutely. Um, So thanks again for everyone who's been listening to us along the way, and it's been a real pleasure reading all your guys' comments and tweets. And it's it's cool, again, just to, again, reemphasize how much fun we're having doing this this podcast with you guys and having you all listen along and and give us feedback. Some of you guys are giving us feedback as you're listening, which is great, and we're really appreciating it and uh, really grooving to you guys what you guys are saying. Absolutely. Some of my uh, favorite people that I've ever met online or in real life are in the fandom community and talking with them, but the stuff we're doing has been really rewarding so far. During the uh, prologue episode, we were mentioning some podcasts we were fans of or been guests on, and we did we did miss out on a couple, didn't we, Jeff? We feel we feel horribly ashamed. Yes, in fact, it's actually totally my oversight because that was actually the lines that I was writing for the for the podcast. Um, our friend Lucifer means Lightbringers, Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast was incredibly, tragically, awfully left out of our list of podcasts that we were huge fans of. We've enjoyed uh, LML's writing as well as his podcasting. And, you know, if you guys have, are trying to listen to something with some excellent studio quality stuff, because that is something that people have talked about that we don't quite have 100% studio quality, which is great, which is fine. You guys are welcome to make those comments. We'll do better. We'll keep improving. We'll do better. But LML's podcasts are top notch and they are very, oh man, how would you even describe them? Um, I would say that they're incredibly dense. And they're detail oriented, and they're kind of uh, mind blowing. Like it, it's in it's in a way. I was I was, ch- I was talking with a friend about uh, LML recently, and I was saying to uh, this individual that I always feel dumb after I listen to LML's podcast because he's talking at a whole other wavelength, and I'm just like not not quite there because I'm all about like the politics and the warfare and the themes and stuff like that. And LML is all about um, the myth all about the world building, all about these really cool ideas that Martin has integrated into uh, into A Song of Ice and Fire. Absolutely. His stuff, I would describe it as both elaborate and entertaining. He brings you to some wild conclusions, but he's really interested in taking you along every step of that journey. So he's one of my favorites for sure. And I, I was on one of his live casts yeah. once and had a great time. So yeah, he's, oh, he's, yeah. he's terrific for sure. Yeah, he's, he's a blast. And then another one of our favorite podcasts that was tragically left off of our prologue episode was the Maester Monthly podcast, which is a podcast which I feel particularly bad about leaving off because I've been a guest on that podcast. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the Maester Monthly podcast is a podcast hosted by the Maesters of the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, all of whom are really great friends of mine. I've met many of them in person. Some of them I haven't met yet, but I hope to someday. And they do really dense analysis of the books as well as the show. So if you want to go back and and rewatch season seven, they did every episode. They did a podcast on the episode, and they're fantastic and fabulous. Absolutely, and I'm uh, huge friends with all of them. They do great work on Reddit, and they're a lot of fun to talk to on Twitter. So I've always enjoyed hearing them talk about both books and show. They're awesome. Oh yeah, it's a it's 
it's a lot of fun. And then finally, the one other podcast we wanted to mention is almost like a sister podcast, I feel at least, is that our, our friend Manu, who is at Manuclear Bomb, who has the best Twitter name ever, has a podcast which is almost like ours in that it deconstructs the TV show Game of Thrones, but there he's doing he and his co-hosts are doing it scene by scene. It's casual, it's laid back, and their latest episode is on the only click game bowl we'll ever see both in Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire. Amen, brother. Now, Manu's great. He's one of my favorite people on Twitter. He's just endlessly fun and great to talk to. I uh, hung out with him a little bit at Con of Thrones last year, and he was on a really interesting panel about race in Game of Thrones. So, yeah, I definitely recommend that podcast as huh. well. They do great stuff. Did they ever release that as like an as some sort of audio format? Because I would love to love to listen to him talk about that. They were doing a lot of panels. I know they didn't get to all of them. I'm not sure. He would probably be the one to ask. But I recommend yeah, look look up just look up my nuclear bomb on Twitter. Just in general, he's a lot yeah. of fun. He is. So that complete. I wanted. I had a question for Emmett um, before we actually get into this chapter itself. So uh, some of the people have asked us about our background in the Song of Ice and Fire. And we'll talk maybe a little bit about that in future episodes. But I had some, I had a different type of question for, for you this evening, sir. Do tell, Jeff. I'm an open book. Okay. So both of us are really big into A Song of Ice and Fire. We're not – I guess I think we can say safely that we're not quote-unquote filthy casuals when it comes to the books or the show. We've read the books we've and reread the books and we're rereading the books right now with you guys. And we've also seen the show and rewatched the show and done all those types of things. But I was curious, what was the first fandom that you were actually, you progressed beyond being a quote unquote, like I said before, filthy casual to being something a bit more like what was the first thing that you were grooving to? And and tell us how old you were when you were first doing getting into this sort of fandom. Well, Jeff, I came out of the womb wearing an Enterprise uniform. So that's (laughs) that's that's pretty much been the core of my fandom relationship. Um, Yeah, I was really into watching. Uh, Deep Space Nine and like TNG reruns when I was a kid, so late 90s oh, yeah. uh, when TNG was uh, off the air, but the movies were were in the in the theaters and DS9 was still on the air. And then I had my first kind of, you know, the, the automatic flip side of the bliss of fandom is, is finding yourself enjoying the snark and resentment and hate. And Star Trek certainly <laughs> dulled that out as well because then Voyager <laughs> happened and that was terrible, and Enterprise happened, and that was somehow worse. So th- that kind of that kind of potpourri of experiences, that yin and yang of love and hate in Star Trek kind of uh, was what first got me interested in a universe unto itself and kind of getting into the culture of it and talking to other people about it. And then Battlestar Galactica really kind of hyper-focused oh, that yeah. for me in terms of online stuff and, and debating theories and all the other writing long essays about your favorite characters and all the, the stuff we do for fun <laughs> for some reason. Uh, and, you know, Battlestar, of course, had a lot of writing staff and just ideas taken from those modern Star Trek shows. Uh, Ronald D. Moore had been on both DS9 and TNG. Right. So that kind yeah. of carried over. And Battlestar, again, was uh, an important, you know, a sharp lesson, to quote Tywin Lannister in terms of fandom, when you got to the end and realized, oh, they had no idea how they were going to end this. And they kind of just made yeah. something up because the writers strike and also they did, they just put clues in. So, like, you know, it was not, not as... Uh, Blayton is lost in that regard, but it was still a teachable moment. Yeah. And and same thing in Song of Ice and Fire. You throw yourself into these books and marvel at the nuances and cry for the characters and then resume waiting. So there's the the the, the pleasure and the pain go hand in hand, my friend. And so that's, you know, Star Trek and Battlestar kind of prepared for me for that in terms of Song of Ice and Fire. 
but yeah, that's very much the fandom place I come from is is those those sci-fi shows about stern old men and the ships they lead. I see. So have you watched the new Star Trek show? And do you have thoughts on it? Or should we save that for a special podcast somewhere down the road? Discovery, man. Like, the, the title is adorable because the one thing they've just completely abandoned about what Star Trek is is discovering things, which is, <laughs> is kind of the whole point. Like, it's it's beautifully shot and the actors are good and there's lots of money put behind it. It's watchable, but it's just got nothing to do with Star Trek. So, it, you know, it, it I have to... It, it, it chafes at my fandom heart, even though I acknowledge it's a perfectly well done show. I just wish I just wish that brand wasn't on it because Star Trek is about Star Trek is like basically just John and the Wildlings writ large. It's just like yes. two groups who are just glare at each other for two thirds of the episode, and then Picard or Cisco, whoever it is, just comes and says something rational and reasonable, and then everyone shakes hands and ba 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 ba, and there's the beauty <laughs> shot of the Enterprise as it flies off. And yeah, that's really corny, but that's what that's what it was, and seeing it turn into like i'm gonna stab you because i'm because i'm because i'm broken like i don't need that from star trek i need i need i like star trek to be where like having a mustache means you're the wild one that's what i want from star trek i want star (laughs) trek to be like oh he occasionally flirts slow down there mr rebellious nonsense pants like that's i like star trek by implying that the future is just going to be a quiet room full of people who get along and just do their job like you know, terribly enough, that's become an optimistic vision of the future in the years since Star Trek yep. first became a thing. So I kind of it's mm-hmm. kind of radical in that regard. So I do I do resent Discovery for that. On the flip side, you have the Orville, which is doing all the things Star Trek should be doing. But it's built around this. It's built around the, the cardboard cutout shape like a man that is Seth MacFarlane. So it's just it's just feels like fan fiction to a degree. It's like they have the flip side op- opposite problems. Discovery is enjoyable in some regard, but isn't Star Trek at all. The Orville is Star Trek, but but it's it's it's, it's again like if if I just started to write my version of a Game of Thrones, that's basically just what the Orville is. But if someone gave me millions of dollars to do that, that's kind of what that show is. So so it's long long and short of it. I'm you know grousing and unhappy but that's the experience of being a star trek fan so i feel right at home jeff i feel right at home in my unhappiness <laughs> i i am miserable and comfortable i am sad and content that's that's how you got to take it that is, is, a, <laughs> that is sad and contented at the same time uh for me very briefly yeah I do tell brother my my first real fandom I remember the first time I read a wiki, like a fan written wiki was for the show Lost, which which Emma talked about a second ago, um, and trying to figure out all the mysteries involved in that and all the different theories that fans had around what things meant. And, you know, this is like 2004, 2005 time frame. Sure. So at that time, like theories, this that was the first show where I was like, yeah, there's a there's a whole lot of theories and stuff that people are seeing that I was not seeing in, in Lost. But the problem with it was that the ending was ultimately unfulfilling and that some of these major theories didn't get a whole lot of resolution. Like what, whatever was that statue foot, if you remember that from like season three, I think that they saw, sure. like what, what did that have to do with anything from, from the end game or, or the, the mythos behind the series? But I, I, I could talk about that. The other, the other one I was, this is kind of weird. But the other one I was really into was the, um, uh, the Knights of the Old Republic game. Oh, uh, sure. That had a lot of lore to it. I know. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 
I remember I, I played um, both games almost back to back because I, my friend lent, lent me uh, Knights of the Republic on Xbox. And then immediately after that, Coder 2 came out and I played that on my computer, actually. And then after that, I was like, oh, man, there's got to be so much story behind that. When's the next game coming out? And as it turned out, it never really came out. I guess you call <laughs> The Old Republic a bit of a sequel, although it's um, different. Um, uh, different. I mean, they're, they're, it, The Old Republic is, is a fine enough game in and of itself, but there was definitely a, a fair amount of unfulfillment in how they resolved some of the outstanding plot strings that they, they never really pulled back, unfortunately. But, you know... Uh, those those are those are my fandoms as in in the mid aughts I guess you would you would call it I mean Battlestar Galactica two is one that I was also reading about and really enjoying and uh, here we are now five books into a Song of Ice and Fire one season away from the end of Game of Thrones and we're gonna find out whether they can pull all the strings of Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones together so in that light let's turn our attention over to a Game of Thrones Catelyn one. Now, before we get into this episode, I want to say a quick spoiler warning. Um, we haven't talked, we didn't talk about this in the brand episode, but you should be aware of this going forward. This podcast will have spoilers for all the published books. So again, all five published books, the novellas, the histories, things that Martin has talked about at conventions, Q&As, whatever it's going to be. It's also going to have wins of winner sample chapter spoilers, potentially, because you never know how our hard minds end up going on these things. And then for this episode in particular... There is going to be a spoiler from season seven of Game of Thrones. So if you are not watching the show or you are not caught up yet, maybe you want to pause this podcast and come back to it when we uh, when you catch up with the show or when The Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring come out, when either those two books come out. So if, if you're avoiding spoilers, just be aware of what we that we'll be talking specifically about one aspect from season seven of Game of Thrones. What Jeff is saying is we're going to get very, very angry about something. And if you <laughs> want to have the proper context of understanding that anger, you should probably watch season seven first. Otherwise, we'll seem even more unreasonable than we generally do. <laughs> I really couldn't have said that one better. <laughs> I try. I try to be charmingly self-aware, Jeff. It's pretty much all I've got. Yeah, we are going to be hot at the end of this episode. I already, I already feel it. <laughs> Amen. But we have to get to the end of the episode, and now the moment you've all been waiting for, Emmett takes us through a Game of Thrones, Catelyn 1. So, the opening suite of chapters at Winterfell in this book, starting with Bran 1, which we did last time, and extending to Jon's second chapter, uh, interrupted only by Danny's first chapter, but that's a topic for next time. These chapters do a masterful job of introducing us to plot and character and setting all at the same time. Now, Catelyn 1... I would say it doesn't do this in quite as an iconic fashion as Bran 1 did with the discovery of the direwolves or that Ned's first chapter does with going down to the crypt with Robert and the setup that does for R plus L equals J or Catelyn's own second chapter has the basically gets the plot going with the discovery of the letter from Lysa about the Lannisters killing John Aaron. Uh, so this is more kind of a, uh, a minor chapter, I would say, not a judgment in quality, but just purely in terms of its overall scope and scale. It's much more focused. We were saying uh, before we started recording that it's very almost theatrical and stagey. I can imagine like a, a spotlight going up on just the, a matte painting of the weirwood and Ned sitting in front of it with the sword and Catelyn enters stage right and they just have their one conversation. It's just the two of them. Uh, it's just this one setting, but the chapter still gets the job done. It's an effective and efficient introduction to Catelyn as a POV. It communicates the first relevant details of the titular Game of Thrones, the political intrigue plot in King's Landing, which will consume a lot of the rest of the book. 
and it's also our first chapter set within the walls of Winterfell itself. Arguably the most mm -hmm. prominent location in the story up there with King's Landing, probably the one we're supposed to emotionally connect to the most in terms of its resonance for the characters, and a, a particular place within it to begin it couldn't be better than the Godswood, the, the very beating heart of Stark identity that comes up so much in this chapter. And the uh, major plot event of Catelyn 1 is the, the news of the death of John Arryn. Dark wings, dark words bring the word of the death of the Hand of the King. And despite not knowing the man, we haven't met him until the sentence that we learn he's dead, we're given an immediate strong sense of a power vacuum that must be filled, that this is going to be what sparks the plot going forward. And now Martin uses it as an excuse to fill in some extremely important backstory about Robert's Rebellion and our main characters, and give us our first sense of the main players in the government of Westeros, beyond simply the name Robert, which came up in both the prologue and Bran 1. Those chapters were largely about establishing themes, narrative elements, and character traits to pay off later. Catalan 1 is where we really start getting a sense of the situation here, the big picture, the context in which all the rest are operating, and the first major plot point of the political side of things. And of course, this is our introduction to Catalan Stark as a POV. And we are made to understand her as a largely assimilated outsider in the world of House Stark from the very opening words. Catalan had never liked this godswood. She stands apart from the center of Starkdom, but she brought her own identity with her, as represented by her flashbacks to her childhood in Riverrun. Her children are the product of those identities interweaving. She is always at home here, but not quite at home. And establishing that bittersweet, in-between way of feeling about Winterfell early on is important because, ironically, Catelyn and Jon have that in common, but for different reasons. And Theon shares it with them. For all that, Winterfell is this warm, glowing, unambiguous source of of warmth and selfhood for Ned and Bran and Sansa. It's, it's a very different picture for Catelyn and Theon and Jon. Winterfell belongs to them, but it doesn't at some level. So Winterfell yeah. is a really psychologically complex setting. We get that right away here with the contrast between Ned and Cat. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different characters, and those different relationships mediate how the characters interact with each other. Catelyn has this quote later on when she's talking to Jane Westerling in A Storm of Swords. When I first came to Winterfell, I was hurt whenever Ned went to the Godswood to sit beneath his heart tree. Part of his soul was in that tree, I knew, a part I would never share. Yet without that part, I soon realized he would not have been Ned. And trying to negotiate between those kind of pushing and pulling emotional forces is central to Catelyn's story. She's caught in between the entire time. The place she tries to carve out for herself isn't like a pathos-laden resistance kind of angle, like we get with Arya and Brienne, where you can sense them pushing against restrictions and trying to define themselves. Catelyn is very much a woman of her time and place. But there is a kind of self-aware sadness to how she makes use of these roles and these customs she knows so well because she can feel them slipping away from her and that they're they're dying and they're not protecting her and they're not protecting her kids. And that's a perspective that Martin finds really kind of tragic and interesting. He has that great quote about why he made Catelyn a POV. Nobody wants to hear about King Arthur's mother and what she thought or what she was doing. So they get her off stage and I wanted it too. And that's Catelyn. Hmm. Yeah, that's a fascinating quote by by Martin for sure. I, it, it really, um, it almost it almost reads congruent with you know what was Aragorn's tax policy, which is something that George has said a lot about what happens after the end of, of Lord of the Rings, and that he wants to explore the types of stories in fantasy that get a paragraph in an appendix or kind of get hand waved away because we don't we don't we we know that Aragorn lived for two hundred years and ruled well. But Martin has said, what does that mean for Aragorn to live 200 years and rule well? And in this context, Catelyn being King Arthur's mother, Martin wants to explore something that is missing from fantasy, from 
these types of fiction motifs and storytelling that were like, yeah, I, I kind of would like to know a little bit more about King Arthur's mother. I mean, we know a, a lot about in, in legend about Uther Pendragon, but we don't know much about his mother beyond some legend about uh, was Uther turned into a, a raven or a crow and flew into the, the castle that that uh, his mother was in. And that's how they conceived and uh, how they how Arthur was conceived. And I, and I like that motif of exploring the parts of fantasy that don't get explored. Those are the strongest, most relevant parts in the Song of Ice and Fire is exploring the sides of fantasy that we are, we don't see in the traditional telling of fantasy itself. Absolutely. And I think it's, and she's not, Catalan sometimes gets criticized as being like an overly observant POV rather than an active one, more of a camera person. And I think that's sometimes true. Like she's very clearly in the second book, Martin's like, okay, I need someone to watch Stannis and Renly have a fight now. And then that, that's going to be Catelyn, and that chapter is about Stannis and Renly. But she is a, a constantly politically active, socially aware person who is constantly analyzing her surroundings and thinking about the history of everybody. Like when she's analyzing the soldiers, I love it when she's kidnapping Tyrion, when she goes to each group of soldiers first and says, here's your relationship to my dad, here's your relationship to my dad, yep. here's your relationship to my dad, I know how this works. You know, I love her relationship to feudal politics and culture. Because even though Ned is our, the main character of the book and the most kind of politically focused character in the book and that it's about him as Hand of the King, he really kind of hates this stuff and just and tries to detach himself from it as much as he can. Catelyn is really the one yeah. in this book who is interested in politics and thinks about politics yeah. and has arguably more of a background. As he points out, Brandon was the one raised to be heir and father to queens and Hand of the King. This was never for me. And Catelyn is the one who in part because she was the oldest child, in part because she didn't really go through the traumas Ned did. She is much more kind of actually invested in thinking about these issues than he is. So for me overall, I would probably cite her as my favorite POV in this first book. Uh, I think I think Sansa and Dany have kind of more like arcs, like you can point to here's where they started and here's where they ended. Like, you know, Sansa started with her head in the clouds and she ends up looking at Joffrey wondering how I could ever have loved him. And, you know, Dany starts as you know, powerless and being a pawn. And by the end, she's the mother of dragons. And Catelyn doesn't really yes. have, Catelyn doesn't really have that. She's not really a different person by the end of the book, but just the amount of amazing scenes in her chapters. Like this is just the beginning. We get her conversation with Ned in the bedchamber about the letter. And then she mm -hmm. goes to King's Landing. We meet Varys and Littlefinger through her. And then she kidnaps Tyrion and she's going up mountains and watching duels and her son's leading an army. And, you know, it's, there's just so much great stuff in her chapters. Like this is just, this is a little tincture, just a little beginning of what we're going to see with her POV. But he he invests – he just has so many great scenes happen from her eyes. And like you, know, like you said, part of that is about reorienting who this story is about. Like Rob is an important character, but he is largely seen to us through his mother's eyes. And that's how we are led to understand him and understand his maturation and where it fails and where he's growing and where he's not. And I think that's – I think that's probably considerably more interesting than what a Rob POV would have been. Martin has said he wishes he included one just to give us a sense of like the Westerlands campaign, which no, largely happens. No, no. But no, Rob is Rob is way more interesting this way because on his own, on his own merits, if we're being honest, he's probably the least interesting of Ned's kids. But yep. seen through Catalan's eyes, he their their relationship, as we'll get into in later chapters, is so rich and so realistic, and feels like such a like an interesting bond. And I would have, we would have missed all that if it had just been Rob's POV and it was just Catelyn was his nagging mother who appeared like in every other chapter to be mean to him. Like that's what it would have been. 
And we've seen that, yeah. and that's disappointing, and this is so much more interesting. No, I, I agree with that, and it's it's really cool, too, that Martin crafts Catelyn as a mother and as a traditional woman. He doesn't have Catelyn swinging a sword, although she, she bears a knife in her final chapter, as, as we'll find out, but she has, you know, a, a very real sense of who she is in this world. And, you know, one of the interesting things about her is that as we're talking about A Song of Ice and Fire, she has it pretty well for women in the story um, compared to many, many women, most of the women in the story. She's a, she's the uh, she's the wife of a lord. Uh, Ned is a good man. Uh, she's not abused or talked down to. She suffers a lot in her chapters, but at the start of the story, she has it pretty good. You know, she's she is a, a stranger in a strange land at Winterfell, but she's... Um, she's well-treated she has children she has a life and a life that's much much superior to to many of the people that we're going to meet i always think weirdly of of the um, um the opposite of her being uh jane pool who just goes through a terrible amount of suffering in the chapter in, in the in all of the books and doesn't have doesn't have the um protection that the nobility offers uh, offers catlin so and and I love Catelyn's chapters. I would say that Catelyn um, becomes my favorite point of view character, close to my favorite point of view character in A Clash of Kings. Uh, that was being probably my my favorite point of view character there. Uh, but in this chapter, I think Ned's my my favorite one, just because I'm, I'm more oriented towards the politics side. But I love Catelyn. I love how emotional and observant she is, and I love that she's she exists as she, and she feels like a real woman and like a real mother. And that's a really great motif that Martin is playing with here with, with Catelyn. Um, and it's, it's interesting because uh, Catelyn, this chapter in particular, was the second chapter that, he, that Martin ever wrote for A Song of Ice and Fire. And like Bran, this chapter almost reads like Martin writing with his hair on fire where he's inspired by this idea and he has to write it. And you can really kind of see that this chapter is the second one primarily through the time gap of the chapter. Where Bran one takes place in the morning, the uh, the day had dawned, so it's it's at dawn is when this chapter takes place, or shortly thereafter. This one takes place in the afternoon, evening after Bran one. So the kids are all playing with the dire wolves, the and trying to name them, and they're fighting about the names. And uh, and Ned is at the the pool cleaning his sword. So it makes sense that George be writing these early chapters in stream of consciousness fashion, which is something that he does really really well. Absolutely, I mean the the setting is so so beautifully written and beautifully conveyed again through through the eyes of a relative outsider like Catalan knows the Goswood but has never felt quite comfortable with it and so she's giving us like you know Bran was in some ways learning how to be a Stark in the previous chapter and Catalan is now also kind of observing Stark identity from the outside not as someone who has to grow into it but as someone who has kind of entered into this communal understanding and relationship with it. She, it's not her place. She never feels quite comfortable here, but she understands it. She's not afraid of it. Uh, and she understands it as part of part of Ned, part of the person she loves. And like, like you say, Catelyn, Catelyn is a woman for whom the social contract of Westeros is working just fine. Like yeah. she, she looked after her siblings when her father was away and her father always, you know, rewarded her and treated her kindly. She was betrothed to one man. He got killed and her, her his brother stepped right into his place and they just kept going. Yeah. And they, they were awkward at first and they forged what seems like a genuinely compassionate, sweet relationship out of it. She has plenty of kids oh, yeah. that she 
that she loves and that she has strong relationships with. And uh, her, despite the fact that she is a, an outsider in this strange land, the northern bannermen seem to consistently treat her with respect and like enjoy her company mm-hmm. and think of her well. So she seems to have won them over in the course of her time in the north. Uh, the one really glaring problem in her life is is Jon Snow. And as we'll get into in later <laughs> chapters, that's less of an emotional reaction to Ned cheating on her and much more a sense that, again, this social contract has been violated. That, like, yeah, you're allowed to have a yes. bastard, but this is not how you're supposed to handle this. So it's it's that sense of, again, so much of this first book from the title on down is about learning the rules. Like, if you're the younger ones, yep. you're Jon on the Wall, Danny in the Dothraki Sea, Sansa and Arya, and even Ned in King's Landing. It's about learning how these systems operate. Catelyn... And maybe arguably Tyrion are the ones who start off the book knowing best how it works. And so, you know, their their stories are more about kind of their negotiations with those rules and Catelyn trying to uphold them, even though they're failing her and Tyrion doing his ironic Sandor thing of pointing out that they're all bullshit. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And and, but yeah, but that's built into kind of every interaction Catelyn has. It's like, okay, what is my job here? What am I supposed to be doing? How can I accomplish that? Who am I supposed to be talking to? Uh, and that's even even in this very intimate situation between husband and wife, we see that they're talking about Lysa, they're talking about the political situation in the South, they're talking about people who are very important to their lives, but there's always a sense of what's our job, what are we supposed to be doing, how am I supposed to be the lady, how are you supposed to be the Lord, and I, I've always yeah. enjoyed that about Catelyn, and I, I find refreshing that she's very blunt about that, like she's not, again, she's not a rebel, but she. She doesn't like pretending that she's not doing politics, like when Randall Tarley snarks at her when she goes to Renly's camp and she says, my, my, my son is, is actually fighting a war, Lord Randall, not just playing <laughs> at one. And I, her, 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 her I am sick of your BS attitude is something I find really enjoyable because it's, it's usually contrasted against very arrogant, pompous people. Uh, and that's something, that, that's something that's going to be fun to look at for sure. But yeah, like you're pointing out um, – this chapter takes place just in the one location, just in the later in the day from Brand One, so it's falling right on the footsteps. And yeah, he does some he does some really solid uh some groundwork in terms of the setting and relationships here. Yeah, so it's it's really um uh, interesting. It's a it's a small setting. Um, it's different from later chapters, which are going to take place in multiple locations. You can see how this chapter might have been more easy to write for Martin. Um, it's also fascinating too in that George reinforces three things that he's been developing in the prologue in, in brand one. Um, you have this whole idea of the werewoods are watching. It's actually, uh, it's kind of funny to me because uh, George continues to obscure that the werewoods are actually watching and kind of throws all this poetic language around the, the werewoods and cats observations because she's looking at the tree and she's seeing that the tree has eyes and a mouth and it looks and it's looking, quote unquote, looking at her. But, you know, as the reader, if you're going through the first time, you would probably be like, oh, you know, it's just atmospherics again. But as we're going to find out in the story, it's not just atmospherics. That Martin is, is essentially hitting us over the head with the idea that the werewolves are actually watching. And, you know, some of the things we're going to find out maybe in Winds is is that um, Bran and other characters might be able to see through the werewolves and see events as they transpired historically. I'd actually be really curious, too, if uh, George has Bran see Catelyn and Ned speak um, from a Game of Thrones in, in the Winds of Winter, one of the visions that he has. That'd be kind of a cool way that he might attack um, uh, Bran's connection to his to his Stark identity. The second thing that Martin does is that he has foreshadowing that is apparent to the characters in the story. We talked about in Bran 1, or rather Emma talked about in Bran 1, 
how the foreshadowing is picked up by characters in Ned's party when they see Mama Direwolf dead. Catelyn reinforces that. She has reservations and concerns about that this is this is bad. This this is bad news for the Starks and bad news for for Ned and the children. And she also has the the knowledge of information that I'll talk about in a second, um, which helps to provide foundation for her concerns about that. And then the third thing that is reinforced again is George writing a bit of irony in Garrett's death, silencing news that the others are back. There's this whole line that quote the others are as dead as the children of the forest gone eight thousand years. Maester Lewin will tell you they never lived at all. No living man has ever seen one, unquote. Well, yeah, of course no living man has ever seen one because Ned killed the last person who had who had seen them. So the, the irony is reinforced in in this in this chapter again that Garrett's death silences the news of the others, although we'll we'll eventually find out that the the um the wildlings are, are aware of the others and the threat, and that's part of why they're gathering together. But so far in the narrative, no one knows that the others are alive. And uh, that's an interesting uh, bit of irony that Martin plays with. Absolutely. It's great that I love that it's Catelyn, the outsider, the Southron woman who does not feel at home in this godswood. She's the one who thinks maybe the others are still a thing. And it's the none more Stark yeah. Ned sitting with the sword literally named Ice at his weirwood tree. He's the one who <laughs> says that, no, 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 this is all gone. This is all legends and stories. And so you get this interesting tension where – you have this chapter that's like establishing the heart of Stark identity and Catelyn is directly engaging with what it means to be a Stark and how she feels about it. While at the same time, Ned has forgotten part of what it means to be a Stark. I mean, you know, you, you hold the castle that where winter literally fell. You are, you are, you have the blood of Brandon, the builder in your veins, you know, whatever it takes to defeat the others, it's pretty clearly central to how Stark and all the power that goes with it. And you have Ned as kind of the guardian of that, again, in this very kind of almost religious, iconic pose with the sword and the tree, yeah. basically being a skeptic in in an in a area where he most certainly should not be. And he should be listening to old man stories. And it's interesting, yes. interesting shift. One of my favorite moments in the story, one of my favorite symbols in the whole story is at the end of Clash of Kings when Bran comes out of the crypts and finds Winterfell wasted. And they go to the gods when they find Maester Lewin dying in front of the in front of the heart tree. It's this perfect symbol of like your your rational mentor is dying and his blood is feeding the power of your magical mentor. And that's just Mark's brain's transition. I think of that scene in this regard. Like this is we're seeing, you know, the the narrative elements of the magical universe surrounding Neb, but he is blind to them at this point. He can't really see the the full implications. And so yeah, there's that tension of we know what really happened, but we're the only ones left who do. And as yeah. much as we come to love and understand Ned, and much as he's, uh, you know, an, an excellent Lord of the North in many ways, he has forgotten this central duty. And that carries over into when we get back to the Night's Watch and John's POV, and we see yes. that that's an endemic problem across the institution, that none of them remember why they're here. And yeah, that's a that's a great tension in this chapter, for sure. It really is. And, and that's a great connection between the Ned Stark not knowing the truth about the others and forgetting the role of the Starks and that winter fell, you know, in this place of this castle of Winterfell, and forgetting that he's holding the sword ice, which has a, a clear connection to, to the others and just forgetting the, th the threat that's coming similar to the night's watch, considering the wildlings to be the true threat, which is not the case as, as we find out as the books progress. Ned even says winter is coming. Like that's what that means, dude. He says Rickon needs yes. to be less scared because winter's on its way, but that's, or when he says, he even says at one point, Mance Raider is nothing for us to fear. And like, yeah, that's the point. Mance isn't the problem. 
he's not the you're kicking your eye off the ball and that yeah he even even this most northern and responsible and well-meaning of lords has has dropped the ball on this point but i interrupted you sir carry on no 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 it's those are all great points and i actually did not even pick up the the winner is coming connection but that's so martin hits us with a triple whammy of of things to remind us that Ned is, is kind of only done on his job a little bit, not not totally. I not in a condemning way, in a, in a way that just sets again sets up the tension that his later political plot is ultimately ultimately on on unstable ground and kind of waiting to be swallowed yeah. up by the plot he's not paying attention to. I don't think we're supposed to hate Ned for that. It's just it's just an interesting tension. No, 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 no. It, it is an interesting tension. Um, so in addition to the things that Martin's reinforcing, he does. He establishes five things in this chapter, which are, are vital for us as readers to have the necessary information to talk about uh, things that will be uh, upcoming. He establishes Winterfell as a location. He does this in an interesting way by talking about the Godswood. And the Godswood is a distinguishing feature of the castle, which does separate Winterfell as a location from a traditional fantasy setting. Uh, so that's an interesting way that he does that. Uh, the second thing that he does in this chapter is he establishes the foundation for Ned and Catelyn's Game of Thrones arc, and he does this by the revelation that John Aaron is dead, and that's a uh, that's something that we're going to be exploring for a lot of Ned's chapters and Catelyn's chapters too. What actually happened to John Aaron? Who killed him? Who poisoned him? But that's established here, where it's revealed that John is dead. And then the third thing is, is that establishes outlines of the old gods and the faith of the seven. So Martin, in, in contrast to Lord of the Rings, where religion and spirituality are kind of off page in Tolkien's world, Martin puts religion and spirituality to the forefront here by contrasting Ned and Catelyn's different faiths. Ned being a follower of the old gods, the gods of the trees and the wood and of the birds, as we're going to find out as well. And then Catelyn being of the faith of the seven, which has a more elaborate uh, set a, a more elaborate structure and set of rituals and different aspects that are going to be explored in significant depth as we go on in the series. And then fourthly, he establishes backstory, Ned's fostering of the veil, Robert's rebellion, which we're going to be talking about a whole lot at the end. And then Ned's marriage to Catelyn. And um, these things are important for the story going forward. It establishes the relationship. And then this works to do the final thing, which is five establish Ned and Catelyn's relationship, which you know, of, of all the relationships that we see in A Song of Ice and Fire is one of the most close, warm, and um, significant in developing the story emanating out of character that we can see um, outside of the negative side, which is Jamie and Cersei. So almost Catelyn, in my, in my opinion, Ned and Cat's relationship works in, as a contrast to the narcissistic relationship that Jamie and Cersei will, be, will have and will be explored again in significant depth. Absolutely. Ned and Catelyn's relationship is very sweet and it's very organic. Like they were strangers to each other at first, as she describes, and it was only slowly bit by bit with careful respect for each other that they developed a real attachment and fondness for each other. And it's very sweet to see it, especially since you get the sense that to the extent that the Stark children are innocents before the story begins, it's because of that love. Like that love has helped and nurtured them and guided them as, as people, as they've started off their lives. And I think it's a source of a lot of their strength for them. And when they think about home and what they love about it so much, I think ultimately that's what they're thinking about. They're thinking of their, like the, the scene in the, in the show of their mom and dad overlooking them with a smile. That's what they have in mind. Yeah. You definitely see that established very clearly in this chapter. Um, and it's it brings out the best in both of them, really. I mean, 
you know, I think about Ned Stark, he's got this this great moment in this chapter where after he learns that Lys is dead, I mean, not that Lys is dead, after he learns that John Aaron is dead, <laughs> getting ahead of myself, after he learns that John Aaron is dead and Lysa has fled back to the Eyrie, he tells Catelyn, go to her, take the kids, make her happy again, make them friends with each other, fill her halls with laughter. And like, this sounds banal, but Ned's fundamental kindness and decency really is the legacy of the Duke. Like, that's from his kids to his vassals. That's what stands out about him. That's what's most n- noted upon and remarkable. Uh, you know, you can talk about honor getting him killed, but, you know, four books later, you have Alice Karstark going to John for help specifically as a son of Ned Stark. And you have Wyla Manderley yeah. declaring in the Merman's court, you know, the Starks took us in and they made us their men now and forever. And you have... Uh, you have uh, when Stannis's men on the march are decrying, we went on all this way for some girl, and the, the clansmen are very clear. No, Ned's girl. We're here for Ned's girl, and that means something very important to us. And that's that's the legacy of Ned Stark. I mean, it speaks to Martin's very kind of very romantic and very hippie philosophy that it, a lot of the series comes down <laughs> to this great contrast between Ned and Tywin. And it's this insistence as you get into the most recent books that in the long run, the guy who ate with his servants won – and the guy who said, you feed your dog bones under the table, you do not seat them beside you on the high ta- on the high bench, lost. That, you know, Ned Ned's legacy is a bunch of people getting together to save his kids. And Tywin's legacy is everything he wanted falling apart while his kids fight each other. And just, if you look at just, yeah, Ned's comment to Catelyn about taking the kids to Lyser, the way his face lights up when Catelyn tells him that Robert's coming, and he just, he's so excited to see his best friend again. And he's, <laughs> this dude has lost a lot in his life, and he has a lot of good reasons to cut himself off from people just in terms of the trauma and the secrets he's had to keep. And he, he can, he could have never seen Robert for the rest of his life. They're just walled away from each other. They're so distant, but he's still, he, the dude still has a lot of love in his heart. And that, that's really what sticks with me about Ned Stark more than any of the details of his investigation on King's Landing. Really the, when I, Ned Stark comes to mind and I think about his importance and meaning as a character, he was just, he was a very kind hearted man. He really, really, really tried hard to be good to people his absolute best his whole life and that that you know that's that's what gets me when he goes and it's what sticks with me when he's gone yeah you know it's really cool about uh ned and catlin's relationship and and that uh as weird as this sounds um i try to mirror my own marriage um with my wife uh and and how they interact and and that they're really in love with each other they they take care of each other they they look after each other they're you know they they tell them hard things too, and that's that's something that comes out where where Catelyn says there is there is no need to. She did not want to soften the blow, she or she rather she couldn't soften the blow, so she just tells him that John Aaron is dead. I'm sorry, my love, John Aaron is dead, and I think it's a it's a it it shows a, a sweetness that that really bears itself out, and and really again like it, it's so the contrast between what happens after Ned dies and what happens after Tywin dies is so freaking. It like hits you over the in the face with with the the clansmen marching to their probable death under Stannis's command to save Ned's girl and the Lannisters all abandoning Cersei after she is arrested by the High Sparrow in a, in a feast for crows. It, it's it's just it, it's or rather the Lannister bannerman abandoning Cersei after her arrest by the High Sparrow in a feast for crows. It really um, just comes out so strongly the contrast between the two and how Ned inspire Ned and inspires love and loyalty and Tywin does not. And, you know, he shows that love and loyalty through he, sh- he shows that love and loyalty to Catelyn and Catelyn responds in, in like kind. 
But, you know, as much as we love this chapter, it's it's a nice, really nice and sweet chapter with some great um, hints at what's to come. I was curious um, about what you might not have liked about this chapter. Well, something I do love, as we've alluded to a couple times, is how Martin feeds us information in these early chapters. He, he has a lot of work to do, and that's something, as I said last episode, is the downfall for me of a lot of fantasy and genre fiction in general is how do you manage the world building in your opening 25 pages? How do you get us introduced to a world in a way that feels immersive and not just ridiculous or like you're being read a list of names that don't mean anything to you? And I think Martin overall does a masterful job of that. I think there are some areas which he necessarily falls short. And then I think in this case, it's John Aaron's death as an event does feel very plotty and exposition-y. Like we haven't heard of him until the sentence... John Aaron is dead. Like we have no context for who he is, so we have to immediately be told who he is, why the characters care, and why she would, why we should care. And that's not that's not a bad thing. It's not poorly written. It does just stand out as like as a very kind of clumsy, on the nose bit of exposition compared to like when Ned and Robert go down to the crypts, and we haven't even mentioned Liana up until that happens, and then this is how we're introduced to her character and the backstory and the first hints for R plus L equals J, and it's just great. Or like. Bran overhearing yeah. Cersei and Jamie, like we're fed a lot of information from their conversation. It's the first time Robert's brothers are mentioned, for example. You can see how Cersei and Jamie are thinking about killing Robert at some point. But there's the tension. It's not just an exposition jump because there's the tension of Bran's overhearing them. They might catch him. What's going to happen? Whereas with John Aaron's death, it's it's just Catelyn walking on stage and reading a bit of information to Ned. So and he had to get it out of the way. There's probably no other graceful way to execute it. But in the context of, a, of those opening and Winterfell chapters, which do do such a great job of feeding us information with grace and style, it does stand out to me. No, it, it, that's that's a very astute point. Martin does, I think Martin does some of his best writing when he has uh, something to to write against, like a like a like a stage. And in here he uses the stage of 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 the Godswood, but it doesn't work. I don't think as well as as it does, as you said in later chapters. Um, uh, the ones you mentioned are, are probably superb in, in, in that way. And, and then Martin's writing of them. Um, it, that's, that's something that we're going to maybe see some of this awkwardness as, as we start in these early chapters. Although in the next chapter, I, I find, I don't see a lot of the awkwardness, but I'm, but again, I'm going to have to reread it a couple times more to, to kind of get into it when we get to talk about the narrative. Jamie feels really fully formed right away as a character in her overall arc. It seems like yeah. he knew, immediately what he wanted done with her and how to divvy it out. But yeah, there are a little bits in Winterfell where it does feel like, oh, I gotta gotta mention this real quick, or they won't know what it is. Um, occasionally. Overall, he does, I think he's ahead of 99% of his contemporaries on this particular hurdle. Oh, for sure. He, he really is. Um, it, to kind of like talk about this sort of the same thing, to kind of go back to something, um, one of the things that I really liked about this chapter was the atmospherics that we see in Catelyn's mind as, as she's talking, as she's contrasting the different aspects of river run, her, her childhood home and the wonderful godswood, her adopted home. Um, I, I like the, the different ways that she describes in her mind of the godswood, the river run godswood being a garden, bright and airy singing birds, nice trees. And it's always, it always seems kind of like sort of parad- paradisical, so to speak. And that it seems very, um, nice and happy and you can hear the birds singing and the the sunshine is out whereas the winterfell godswood is dark primal untouched untended gloomy and old and i think it's a really interesting and uh great way to kind of distinguish between 
the Starks and the Tullys here, and I love the way that he does that with the atmospherics. I completely agree. I think, you know, those... He, he does like to linger in his uh, vivid setting descriptions and really get you into the sense of a place. And that's really – he's got this amazing quote about how the best fantasy is written in the language of dreams. It is alive as dreams are alive, more real than real, for a moment at least, that long magic moment before we wake. Fantasy is silver and scarlet, indigo and azure, obsidian, obsidian veined with gold and lapis lazuli. Reality is plywood and plastic done up in mud brown and olive drab. Fantasy tastes of habaneros and honey, cinnamon and cloves, rare red meat and wines as sweet as summer. Reality is beans and tofu and ashes at the end. Reality is the strip malls of Burbank, the smokestacks <laughs> of Cleveland, a parking garage in Newark. Can you tell that George Martin's basically the Lorax? Fantasy is the towers of Minas Tirith, the ancient stones of Gormengast, the halls of Camelot. Fantasy flies on the wings of Icarus, reality on Southwest Airlines. Why do our dreams become so much smaller when they finally come true? We read fantasy to find the colors again, I think, to taste strong spices and hear the songs the sirens sang. There's something old and true in fantasy that speaks to something deep within us, to the child who dreamt that one day he would hunt the forests of the night and feast beneath the hollow hills and find a love to last forever somewhere south of Oz and north of Shangri-La. They can keep their heaven. When I die, I'd sooner go to Middle-earth. So that's that's just a delightful <laughs> passage for a number of reasons. But just your description of the yeah the image imagery and contrast between River Run and Winterfell just made me think of it. And yeah, that's you know that's a lot of what we're reading it for. Is you know obviously the character arcs are fascinating and the deconstruction is well executed and all that stuff is great. But a lot of it is just about like you know just the image of those direwolves in the snow or the image of Ned Stark sitting against his tree with a face, you know, uh, rubbing down his sword. It's just like those. Yeah. Those moments that make you want to learn more about what's going on is, is is what it's really all about, and he 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 hooks you in immediately with those with those descriptions of because now I want to see River Run, now I want to see find out how it contrasts with Winterfell because she described yeah. it so well, and later on I will get to. So yeah, I agree. The atmospherics is yeah again even in a chapter that's not as tied into the overall magical plotline as the last two chapters, it still gives you those those beautiful spooky serene images for sure. Yeah, I, I I really like the idea that you're describing of River Run being as a place that you want to visit that Martin paints this very vivid picture here and using the sights and the sounds and the scents and the light. It, it's a really cool way that he does it. Um, and, you know, the, the cool thing, too, about it is that River Run is described in as almost a magical place in Catelyn's chapter. And then we actually get to visit it at the end of A Game of Thrones, also from Catelyn's perspective, where things are not quite so bright and airy and singing birds and um, it's something that we'll be exploring a bit more. Um, but that does kind of lead me to the dislike that I have and, and about this chapter. And this chapter is a really, really good chapter. Again, it's not as complex as Brand 1 or the prologue, but I, I enjoy this chapter a lot. But this dislike is going to seem a bit kind of airy and ethereal. And, um, and it's about world building and about how the world building seems a little bit underdeveloped in so much that the line, quote, the blood of the first men still flowed in the veins of the Starks, unquote. That works in this chapter to contrast Catelyn to Ned and contrast the Tullys to the Starks in the chapter. But, you know, in 2014, when The World of Ice and Fire was published, we find out that the Tullys were originally first men with only with some Andal blood later mixed in. So it almost feels like this con it lessens that contrast here that Catelyn is making. So again, he's contrasting the River Run Godswood and the Winterfell Godswood, and then he's contrasting Ned and Catelyn, and that one is the blood of the first man, 
And then the assumption that you make as you're going on is that, oh, then that means the Tullys are Andals and that, you know, there's this, this kind of divide between the two and that's what the contrast that Catelyn's working here. But then you find out in the world of Ice and Fire that no, actually the Tullys are also first men. So it, it does kind of make the, um, uh, it, it makes the, the impact a bit less in the world of Ice and Fire. But again, that, that feels like a nit more than anything else, but it is something that I catch on, on rereads nowadays and that it doesn't feel as developed as we're going to find out in the world of Ice and Fire and later on. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic that, he he kind of explores it well in terms of character, like you say, but not so much in terms of the actual details of the world building. That's true. Yeah. Uh, he definitely. I mean, there's, it's it's part of the early installment weirdness that is so common to the first part of any ongoing series, especially if you're not laying it out all rigidly beforehand, as he does not. So there are a lot of moments in this first book like that where you go back to him and go, "Hey, wait, that's not actually accurate, or that's not that doesn't seem congruent with what we learn later." Uh, there are tons of little moments like that. I think he does a good job of integrating world building into character arcs. Like, as you say, talking about River Run, not just out of nowhere, but as a way to contrast Catalan and Ned. Uh, or, you know, the way he will later on in the book use little conversations as a way to set up characters to be introduced later. That's something he's really good at. Like, we learn a lot about Tywin before we meet him. We learn a lot about Stannis before we meet him. And that's it's the setup so that when they, they appear on the page, it feels... They feel familiar already. It feels like the last piece of a puzzle falling into place rather than just staring at a stranger. Yeah. You have to find out everything about. But I agree. In terms of the actual bones of the universe, there are moments in this first book where you can see he didn't quite have it all together. And he was just he was just going for the you know, it's just fine. He was going for the cool sentence in the moment, but then did not always later support it. Yeah, but again, it, it it's more of a nit more than anything else. I mean, it doesn't. It's not a like like the last uh, dislike I had about the brand chapter. It doesn't kill the story. It just is kind of an oddity that we notice on, on rereads that we're going to, you know, as we see more about the history of, of the world, as Martin develops it in his own mind and on the page, it, it, it does stand out in, in, con- in contrast to some of his earlier stuff that he was working on. Um, but you know, it's, it's fine. It, it really is. It really is fine, but it, it does something. It, it stands out and you know, what can, what can, what can you do? Yeah, yeah, all you can do with it is roll roll with it at this point. But yeah, that it it functions dramatically within the scene, like you say. But it is an eyebrow raiser on a on reread for sure. Yeah, but you know this is interesting because um, the world building itself is is fascinating in this chapter. And I was curious, did you um, what was the parts about the world building that might work in the context of, of foreshadowing and, and groundwork that Martin is building? And laying tracks on for future events going forward in the story. Well, she's he's certainly setting up the Tullys. Like we now have a sense of where they're from and how they are at least day to day different from the Starks. And that's gonna you know the Tully family dynamics are kind of always slumbering under the surface until you get to the end of a Storm of Swords and you realize that what Hoster did to Lysa it you know helped indirectly start all of this. Uh, so. You, Oh, so you do get a little sense of that right away. With yeah, River Run is this perfect paradise for Catelyn, but that's not true at all for her sister, as, as we'll get into later. There's the setup for uh, the kind of the South Run ambitions block, as it's known, the the network of marriages and alliances among a bunch of different Paramount lords. When we get into Catelyn having uh, married Ned's brother in place of Brandon Stark. And there is the, the great little backstory we get for Robert's Rebellion that just... Again, Martin doesn't just stop the story dead to tell us. You have this letter as kind of an excuse for Catelyn to be thinking about it. So she gets into 
This is our first mm-hmm. mention of the Mad King. Is we'll develop that much more later, and our, our first mention really of Robert beyond simply just a name. Now we get a sense of really who he is and why he gets brought up a conversation. So I do, yeah, I do like all that, all of those yeah. elements of world building. I do world building slash uh, groundwork. I do enjoy greatly. Yeah, it's almost like uh, I think you you have put it in the past. Like it's almost like putting a puzzle pieces uh, in. Um, uh, and I think that's an interesting way of, of talking about world building is, is Martin kind of fitting things together as opposed to uh, how, how did you put it? Staring at a stranger. Exactly. Like you don't, by the time you like re meet Beric Dondarian in a storm of swords, you already know him. You've heard his legend over and over again. You know what he's doing and why he's doing it. So it just feels like, ah, and here he is like everything has been built up to it perfectly. And then just, yeah. he is the last simply meeting him is just the last part of that puzzle or Marwin the mage. By the time you meet him, you already have gotten a huge sense of this dude from just the little bits he's been mentioned here and there, so that when you meet him, it, it just yeah. it all it all adds up perfectly. Uh, you know, you can't do that for every character, of course. Sometimes you're just going to meet people out of the blue, and you'll get to know them as you go. But it's a great way of making your universe feel integrated and making the characters just feel depthful right off the bat. And it's just it's just fun to see characters' reputations spread. That's just interesting. Like, the, probably the biggest example is Dany. By the time you get to Feast and Dance, everyone is talking <laughs> about Dany all over the planet. Um, and I think, uh, that's, I like that's something that Martin does well, yeah. is to give you a sense of these characters and in their context, because these are characters people would be talking about. So it just makes it feel more realistic that everyone's, that people don't necessarily come out of nowhere, that you would see yeah. these people coming. Like, obviously, people are making plans for Stannis and Mance before they show up, because they're important people. <laughs> Who have impact, so they're they, you know, it feels very grounded uh-huh. that way. No, it, it really does, and and that type of groundwork that Martin's doing in this Catelyn chapter, and that building up the legend of these people before they actually enter the page, is, is a good, is good storytelling, and does have give us as readers a sense of these characters before they even enter a single scene into in in the books. And one of the ways that he does it for. Um, a set of characters that we're going to meet not until the fifth book is the children of the forest. You have this line in the, in Catelyn's chapter, which is I've, I've read previously, but I'll read again. It's quote, the others are as dead as the children of the forest, unquote. So we know as readers at the meta level that the others are not gone. They're not dead. They are walking around and doing terrible, awful things. So, it's almost like Martin is winking at the reader and letting us know that, hey, the others are as dead as the children of the forest. What we're, what I'm saying here, I'm George R. R. Martin. Uh, what I'm saying, <laughs> I should not say that I'm George R. R. Martin. People think get the wrong person because I am not George R. R. Martin. But what, <laughs> but, but what, what Martin is trying to say here is that uh, if the, the others are not dead and the children of the forest are being compared to the others as being not dead, so are, are being are being told by Ned that they're they're dead. But they, um, they show in the forest exist, and they're they're still active in the world, and that's something that we're going to see in in a Dance with Dragons in in the fifth book. Absolutely, you can already see him building the groundwork in for that revelation when it hits when Bran shows up in that cave, and yeah, Leaf emerges and the torch lights up her eyes. It's just such a great moment. But part of the early installment weirdness we were talking about earlier is there is some foreshadowing in this first book for stuff that doesn't really happen. You can kind of like it's just abandoned bridges. That just, you know, linger there halfway done where you can see he was setting up stuff that he mentions in the pitch letter but didn't end up happening. So you uh, you unearthed a great example of that in this chapter. Yeah. So thank you. And <laughs> but but to kind of to, to kind of talk a little bit about the background um, again, as we talked about last episode, Martin began writing a song of ice and fire in 1991. 
Um, he started writing and he wrote about 200-ish pages by 1993. And then he abandoned, or rather by 1992, he started writing for another TV show called Doorways, which didn't end up getting picked up. Um, when the pilot wasn't picked up, Martin returned to A Song of Ice and Fire and he pitched the work that he was writing to his agent in a 1993 letter, which is available now for people to read if you want to go and read that. And I'll try and link that in, in the show notes this time around. But uh, in, in particular for this chapter, he Martin had this idea for Catelyn's fate, and I'll, and I'll quote it. Quote, abandoned by the Night's Watch, Catelyn and her children will find their only hope of safety lies even further north, beyond the wall where they fall into the hands of Mance Raider, the king beyond the wall, and get a dreadful glimpse of the inhuman others as they attack the wildling encampment. Bran's magic, Arya's sword needle, and the savagery of their direwolves will help them survive. But their mother, Catelyn, will die at the hands of the others. Unquote. So, wow. Yeah. That's Martin's original vision is Cat Stark dying at the hands of the others in, in, at the end of her arc. Um, again, as you guys all know, cause you're rereading the books with us now, that's not how Martin eventually writes it. He comes with a better idea in the red wedding, better and more horrific, you would, you could say. Um, but here in this chapter, it's interesting because Martin lays down groundwork for this event that he originally is, is seeing. And, or it's interesting that in this chapter, we see George R. R. Martin laying down groundwork to foreshadow Catelyn's originally envisioned fate beyond the wall. And it's, you find it in this quote. It's, and it's kind of a lengthy one. So I'll, I'll read it. Uh, it is kind of a lengthy one. So it's quote, Ned lifted ice, looked down the cool steel of it, and it will only grow worse. The day may come when I will have no choice, but to call the banners and ride North to deal with this King beyond the wall for good and all beyond the wall. The thought made Catelyn shudder. Ned saw the dread on her face. Mance Raider is nothing for us to fear. There are darker things beyond the wall. She glanced behind her at the heart tree, the pale bark and red eyes, watching, listening, thinking its low, slow thoughts. Its long, slow thoughts. So it, it reads that this is foreshadowing Catelyn going beyond the wall because she is talking about there are darker things beyond the wall, meaning the others primarily is what she's referring to. And um, that Martin was laying groundwork here for an event that he doesn't end up doing in, in the book. See, Catelyn ends up dying at the Red Wedding, as we all know. But so keep that in mind in the early Game of Thrones chapters, we're going to see a lot of groundwork and foreshadowing congruent with this 1993 letter, because again, uh, he sent to his agent along with his letter. And these are things that George will abandon or will kind of reuse as more ambiguous or subtle foreshadowing of, of other things we, we progress. But it's an interesting kind of abandoned bit of foreshadowing that uh, it kind of stands out when you have the context of the letter in mind. Absolutely. In the context of what happens to Catelyn, it doesn't really foreshadow anything in particular. She never really thinks about going beyond the wall. It never comes up again. But yeah, it's 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 good to note and also to keep in mind, especially when looking back at the first book, that some things that that stand out as foreshadowing might not end up in the final draft. Uh, so you know, don't don't always build your theories on stuff purely from the first book, like the dire wolves howling at Tyrion. Some of that stuff is stuff he's he's given up for dead. Yes. Uh, but yeah, that is an interesting one where it's it's yeah. There's not much ambiguity there. That's definitely very clearly foreshadowing her her going beyond the wall and dying. And nope, like you said, he found a much more devastating and appropriate way to bring that about. And we're we're all the better for it, I guess. We're all the sadder for it. We're all the more. I guess we're all the I more guess. in tune with our emotions <laughs> for it. Something. Some there's some some benefit from it. I swear there is. There, there is, and and I do think that Martin wrote a better, 
uh, version of her death in the Red Wedding than what he originally envisioned. And this is some, this is a point that um, uh, our f- friend and someone that we admire, Adam Feldman, has made that when you read Martin's 1993 letter, it reads almost, I don't know, how would you describe the story that Martin originally envisioned? Almost a bit cliched in terms of fantasy. Um, there's less of these emotional, massive, impactful moments occurring in the story that have become iconic in the cultural zeitgeist now stuff like the red wedding stuff like joffrey choking to death these things were not envisioned in the letter these you know in in the letter you know catelyn dies beyond the wall joffrey dies in battle with rob stark and and or or maybe that jamie kills joffrey i can't remember what how it how the letter reads i'll have to reread the letter first i think rob kills joffrey in battle i'm not sure though yeah yeah and then jamie kills his way to the to become the king or of the seven kingdoms and so there's these things that that read almost kind of like cliche fantasy that that uh, that Martin says. No, I got better ideas as, as he progresses. And um, Catelyn dying at the red wedding, Rob dying at the red wedding, are ways that uh, that George uses this process where he has these uh, ideas and thoughts that come into his mind, and he changes course from his original plan. And I think at some level we're better we're better as as readers for it. Amen, brother. I couldn't have put it better myself. I agree with 100% of that. Yeah. Um, So, Emmett. Uh Uh-oh. Are you ready? Probably not, Jeff, but I'm a sinner, so (laughs) go for it. I'll I'll take what I deserve. Well, I I forgive you, but don't tell anyone that I I forgive you for your sins. Um, No one realized that Jeff has a heart of gold. No one know that. You can't know that, but... So there's something that we didn't do last time. Do you, do you know what that thing is for the last episode on Bran? No, what did we not do, Jeff? I have a great theory for you. Ah, uh, why? What <laughs> I do, oh lord. I try to be a good person. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. What is it? Okay. You ready? Mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to be able to refute this one. Because when I oh, tell good. you... When I tell you the source of this your head is going to snap back and you're going to be like, Oh my God, this is, this is crazy. I, my mind is totally blown. So are you ready for this? I look forward to it. Okay. Get this. Robert's rebellion was built on a lie. What did I do to you specifically, Jeff? What did I ever, what line did I cross with you to hurt me? Oh, wait, 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 Yeah. 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 Before you start like throwing, throwing counter theories at you, this is why this theory is 100% authentic truth and justice, and it's the freaking... And the American way. way. Ready for this? <laughs> yes, so sir. So the source of this theory, it, it's not a fan. It's not... Um, I mean, it's not George R. R. Martin, so, so bear in mind with that. But the source of this theory, Brandon effing Stark from season seven of Game of Thrones. Kaboom. This is hashtag canon. And that's what makes it hurts. It comes from everyone's favorite creepy messiah kid. Yeah, this is I remember I was I remember the moment that happened on season seven. I remember just my fists clenching and I'm told my face was red. I blacked out for a few seconds. I was just so infuriated because this is this is a fight we've been having in the fandom since the fandom has existed about like whether Robert's Rebellion was a justified war, given what we learn about in this chapter, also known as, you know, the correct take. And then there's the idea that 
No, Robert's Rebellion was built on a lie because it was all just about Robert fighting to get Lyanna back because he just wanted her and that's – and he was rebelling against his rightful king and he's a usurper and that proves that nothing means anything and everything is gray and fuck you for caring. That, that's basically the argument <laughs> that we've been having as a fandom on this particular question and it, it just makes me mad. So, OK, let's let's go over what we learned in this chapter, Jeff. What okay. did Aerys Targaryen do? What 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 was his thing? What what did he what did he do that made this whole conflict a possibility? Oh, what did Ares do in this chapter? I know it's um, I know it's well, a, he, it's a um, minor detail. Uh, oh shit! He he called for the heads of Ned and Robert, two seventeen-year-old kids. That that seems kind of off. And what did, what what were their crimes, Jeff? What did they do to deserve this fate? They they were um, Starks and Baratheons. That about sums it up, yep. They happen to be in the families of the wrong people. And so, does that strike you as fighting a war over someone ran away with my girlfriend? Or does that more strike you as fighting a war because the crazy guy on the throne wants my head on a spike? Come on, guys. Like, again, I get the romantic allure of it was all about Robert fighting for Lyanna, but no, that's how Robert thinks about it, because Robert's kind of an idiot. But if you (laughs) take a look at the actual facts of what occurred on the ground, what happened was Rhaegar ran off with Lyanna. Brandon threatened the life of the crown prince. Brandon got thrown in jail. Ricard gets called south to answer for it. At this point, there is no war. There is no inherent necessary fight. Ricard comes south in peace to to deal and get his son free of of these accusations of treason. What makes it a war is when Eris then burns Ricard to death, makes Brandon watch while strangling himself, and says to John Aaron, look at the fine thing I've done. Would you care to send the heads of Ned and Robert to me? And John, said, John Aaron said, no, fuck that, and fuck you, and yep. started a war. Like, that's what happened. And obviously, how Robert's rebellion ended is purposefully designed to add a sour note to that whole mixture. The fact that it ends with him ascending to the throne over the butchered bodies of Rhaegar's children is deliberately there to make you realize this war that started off with such just cause has turned into a monstrous affair because that's how war works, etc., etc. But that doesn't work as a contrast if you don't start out with the war as being fought for justifiable reasons, which it was. Like, thinking that it was fought because Rhaegar ran off with Lyanna is like thinking that Garland Terrell was actually Renly's ghost. It's it's believing the songs and taking them absolutely 100% literally. Like, yeah, that's the popular conception. That's what everyone tells themselves about why the war was fought. But we're supposed to dig a little deeper than that and realize that, no, the reason the war was fought is because the Mad King completely violated the Westerosi social contract to the extent that such a thing exists. And yes, it exists to a certain extent. And at that point, Ned and Robert were fighting for their lives and fighting against a king who had openly declared he was just going to kill whoever he wanted. And there was no other pretense behind it. There was no ideology involved, no competing claims, no state building, none of the other things that wars are fought over. It was purely just dominance. And that's it. And so for me, there's real no ambiguity about the decision to fight back against that. There's ambiguity in how that war ended. There's certainly a critique to be made in terms of how Robert acted as king, which we will get into in later oh, yeah. chapters, as the man himself appears in all his corpulent glory. All, sorry, again, all his obese glory. <laughs> but if you look at the actual basis for what this war was, why it was fought, and how it had to end, it's not, it was not fought for a lie. It was not just about Lyanna running off with Rhaegar and Robert feeling slighted. It was, at its core, a, a fight for survival and a fight about 
whether Westeros has an absolute monarchy. And Westeros doesn't have an absolute monarchy. Aegon the Conqueror never even framed it that way. Aerys acted that way. Yep. But if you actually break down how the Targaryens function as an institution, the decent ones, the ones who had any mind of keeping their kid around the Sith throne after them, understood it was a lot more complicated than that. Oh, for sure, yeah. And Aerys... Eris broke it. Eris had the Targaryen monarchy in his hands, this priceless Ming vase, and he dropped it on the ground and shattered it. Yeah. Like that for me, that's that's what happened with Robert's rebellion. And yeah, we, again, you could you, you can make the case, of course, that Robert was a horrible, neglectful king. That Dany's proving much better. I could, Dany has cl- a claim to make on her own merits, but the notion that Robert rebelled against his rightful king is bullshit. <laughs> bullshit, I say. And to you. Well, I just want to say for the record, for those of you who are listening to include Emmett, that I was just playing the part. I was acting there. I would like to, if you feel like nominating <laughs> me for an Emmy, I would not turn down the award where it offered to And me. acting skills on part with Varys, Master of Whispers, kind That's sir. That's right. Simply beautifully done. Because because I, I am in absolute 100%, 1 trillion percent agreement that Robert's Rebellion is utterly justified from its outset. And and here's the thing too that's that's kind of thrown around as a talking point by some in that some people are like, "Oh, well, it's not justified because you know the the southern conspirators were planning to to overthrow Ares anyways and so, you know, they were just looking for a pretext for war. Even if they were looking for a pretext for war, even if they were all conspiring to overthrow the Targaryens and install their own ruler, whether it being Robert or John Aaron or whoever it was at the outset, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to the fact that Ares was doing awful, terrible, evil, immoral, unjust nonsense and bullshit in his reign. And it really infuriated me when I, when I heard that line in season seven. Now, I just for the record, I like season seven a lot. A lot of things they did and certain episodes I actually really loved a whole lot. But that line, I literally was sitting on my couch and I just leaned my head back and I was like, this is bullshit. This is not why Robert's Rebellion was fought. That Robert's Rebellion was based on a lie. Robert's Rebellion was justified. It was fought more or less honorably by the rebels, although there are some things like Hoster Tully burning the village, which was not great. Hoster kind of sucks. <laughs> he's he's yeah, the worst well, one of that bunch of that generation of lords. By far. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, you I, I just there, there's unjust conduct in, in wars, too, in some of the most justified wars. You know, Martin has talked about that World War Two, that he's not a total pacifist, that he would have fought in World War Two had he been called up for service because he believes that that was a just war. Robert's Rebellion is it. But at the same time, for for World War Two, the allies and I would consider myself pro-ally, as I think all good, noble, and righteous people would. What a bold and daring statement, sir. Why do you yeah, know, why right? do you call I, everyone you criticize a Nazi? Why is everyone you disagree in, in with a Nazi, days, Jeff? Block and unsubscribe. God. Mm. Ray was a our, Mary Sue. Anyway, carry dumb, on. Our dumb days and our dumb modernity, but beyond that. We live in dumb times, this is true. But beyond that, the allies you were saying. Beyond, beyond that, the, the allies even – the allies were justified in, the, in in fighting the war to begin with, and but they did do some unjust actions in the war, and you can debate what the what those unjust actions are. Um, and I know there's still debate over things like dropping the atomic bomb, firebombing Japanese and German cities, and different things like that. But that doesn't also negate 
the righteousness of the Allied cause, and the same thing of Hoster Tully burning Lord Goodbrook's village and Tywin Lannister sacking King's Landing doesn't negate the initial justified nature of Robert's Rebellion. And I think saying that the, the rebellion is based on a lie, that people died for nothing, for a lie, it invalidates the social contract, which is something we've talked about in this episode and about how important that is between a king and his people, that the king ultimately strives for justice, that the king is not tyrannical. And Ares II was a fucking tyrant, and I will I will put that on my fucking grave. I will absolutely he deserved and like, to go. Yeah, and he needed to die. He deserved to go. His heir was nowhere to be found. So at that point, yeah, you call the banners. Again, like you look at Rob's rebellion, and Rob's rebellion is obviously being fought for these passionate, sympathetic reasons that we're meant to are meant to feel moved by. The fact that he's lost his dad, and the fact that Northern culture, you know, they want to have the, have their own kingdom again and rule themselves again and they wed the dragons and the dragons are all gone it's it's very great romantic stirring language you're supposed to cheer for it the way you cheer for you know the guys in braveheart like it's a very primal rebel yes. against the man thing it's you know i'm i sound glib but it's a really it's really effective storytelling but it is deliberately yeah. undercut by they lay with lions you know jamie and brand stumbling across women horribly attacked and killed by Stark soldiers for no other crime than having catered to Lannister men. Or you get all the small folk who say that for them, functionally, the wolves and the lions are the same thing. Or you get the car Stark men running all over the country killing people for uh, to, to find Jamie. And it's, it's – the, the implication is, of course, even wars fought for good reasons by decent people involve an endless parade of horrors. But that doesn't change yeah. the fact that – that doesn't make Rob the moral equivalent of Joffrey. Like there's, there has to be a distinction yes. there where we realize that yes, it's tr it's tragic and eye-opening that the war fought for good reasons of all these horrible things. That should that should slow you down from going to war, even for good reasons. That's something you should always bear in mind. That's what Duran's mother said to him: "Think of the children and everything you do. This mm -hmm. is your realm. This is what you're here to protect." But that's not the same thing as saying Robert should have just let Eris cut his head off. Or I don't even know like what the what the alternative worldview to that is. I think you, there has to be an acknowledgement that a lot of what Martin is exploring is you know why we are attracted to war and why we shouldn't be. The good right. reasons we go to war and how our noble intentions fall short. And if it was just everyone's an asshole and fights war for stupid reasons and everyone's a monster and again fuck you for caring. Yeah, I've read those <laughs> books too. Those books suck. Those series are yep. terrible. Like Grimdark had an initial useful period when it was a, a good like like a cleanse for the genre, like a nice yeah. sharp shock to the values. But it's the overstated contrast. its welcome. Yeah, the contrast is what it was useful for. But when, once it became dominant, then it's just why why do I care about anything? <laughs> if if everything if it's just a grimdark future and everyone is awful. A Song of Ice and Fire is obviously about stripping away certain naive ideals and blindnesses on how fantasy worlds work and how medieval politics work. That's why Sansa functions in this first book the way she does as someone who's been raised on stories and songs and has to learn better. But the ultimate answer, as we were saying about Ned and Tywin earlier, is not to give up all hope and think that every possible cause that everyone ever believed in is secretly meaningless because knights kill people. Like That's what Sandor thinks now. We're not supposed to agree with him. We're not supposed to think no. that Jamie is right to have abandoned all hope in his life. Like these are 
these are you know hard realities they're, they're expressing they're, they're to tragedies, us. Yeah. They're tragedies, exactly. That's what I'm I'm blathering many words to to ultimately say here that we're supposed to feel sad about this stuff. We're supposed to feel right. bad that Robert's rebellion turned horribly, not to like wag our fingers and go, ha ha, see. You shouldn't have believed in anything after all, Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon. Like, no, it's you're supposed to contemplate the sadness of how even those, even that justified cause, was ultimately ended up with dead children, and that's something you're supposed yeah. to keep in mind. The characters are supposed to keep in mind, but yeah, to go from that to Robert's rebellion was built on a lie. I shared your outrage at that because that that misunderstands the most vital part of the backstory, and I think is is a conclusion that ultimately makes the story less interesting rather than more interesting. I think it makes it it just kind of flattens everything out in a way that just isn't dramatic anymore. It 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 does and I think you can throw as many words as you want about this cuz I can listen to this forever. I will just say one thing and one thing only. I'm going to level with you guys who are listening. If you guys believe that Robert's rebellion was built on a lie and that the rebels were were not justified, then I got news for you. Your theory is bad, and you are ugly. Ba-bam! And Jeff just walks out the room he's never seen again, and just, I want to know what love is, is playing behind him in the background <laughs> in slow motion. This is, it's just Jeff's triumphant moment, I think I would have Warner as my, like, a, yeah. <laughs> for some reason, that just leapt um, to my mind. It's like, yeah, that sounds about right. The credits play. Yeah. But yeah, that 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 about sums that up. So come at us, Eris apologists, and and anti Roberts rebellion folks. Come at us with your theories. We will yeah. we will drink deep of your tears. And, and and I will say just so that you guys feel better, if you might think this and, and stuff like that, is, is that there was a there was a point in my life not that long ago where I had this idea that Rhaegar was ultimately responsible for robert's rebellion but no he's he's not i was wrong in that aziz from history of westeros did a good job in uh having a corrective to my hashtag bad thinking on it so guys just don't believe that nonsense and you know the show as great as it is and as much as we enjoy it at this point kind of reads like not the greatest interpretation of the groundwork and the history that Martin has talked about Robert's rebellion. So guys, it's uh just don't don't believe it. That's all I got to say. That that that's how I'm going to conclude it out. Don't believe the anti-hype. I agree, good sir. Don't believe the anti-hype. But anyways, well, wow. That was as I said at the very beginning, that got pretty hot there. I think on both our sides, huh? I'm 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 furiously fanning myself down and demanding a mint julep. This is true. But then again, you know, that's that's just Monday for me, so I don't think this is anything out of the ordinary. No, that's it's pretty pretty normal for us. But um but yeah, so uh that is everything that we have from a Game of Thrones Catlin one. Thanks everyone for listening to us, and uh, thanks for uh, listening along to our extended rant. I think that was a lot of fun, but you know, we'll see how what the, what, what the hashtag people think. And um, yeah, thanks so much for for giving us a listen, both for our previous episodes and for this episode. Yeah, you can always uh, find us and tell us what you thought on social media. I'm at Port Quentin, and I'm also on my Tumblr page at portquentin.tumblr.com. Yep. And I'm uh, at Brendan B. Fish on Twitter and Brendan B. Fish on Reddit if you want to find me there. And now you'll join us next week. We're going to have our first trip across the narrow sea with uh, Daenerys 1. 
been greatly looking forward to zooming out to that extent. We have these few chapters nestled in Winterfell, and then we just go all the way across. So that's going to be a yeah, delight. It's going to be so much fun to be across the Narrow Sea for a really intense and in-depth chapter that, um, for me, at least I feel, not to spoil my thoughts for next week, that kind of vaulted me more into reading this series than any other chapter. Danny, he had, a, we were talking about little bits of early installment weirdness, little things that didn't pay off, little character traits that got changed. Danny is right there on the page immediately in the opening paragraphs of that story. He's setting up who she is, how she thinks, what her backstory is, how she relates to what's going on around her. And it's it's just exhilarating. So we're going to have a lot to talk about. We absolutely are. So again, thank you everyone for listening and we will see you guys next week. The Not A Cast podcast is written and recorded by Port Quentin and Brendan Beefish. The music that you heard is by the band Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, and their closing song is called Alaska Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you guys next week.